Hello everyone out there. I want to just welcome you all to this special new uh, segment here at Stage Whisper. We are calling Whisper in the Wings. Um, this is just one of the many new exciting things that we are going to be having come out from Stage Whisper in the next few weeks and coming months. And it's really all thanks to all of you out there, all of you um, followers and subscribers, thanks to the growing following and subscribing that we've had with this podcast, there's a lot of exciting things in the works and that are coming down the pipeline. So thank you so much. Um, if you haven't already, please, please subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast and tell a friend, help us out. You know, um, this new segment we're calling whisper in the wings is going to give us a chance to introduce all of you out there, all of our listeners, um, to new theater artists from shows we've seen and some production companies and shows that we haven't. Um, the One of our missions with this podcast is to help promote lesser-known theater and to continue to connect a wider theater audience and grow the community as a whole so that this art form that we all hold near and dear to our hearts can continue to thrive and change and amaze us each time the lights dim. So... Hopefully, this will be like a weekly or bi-weekly bonus episode, and we'll bring on different playwrights and actors and production companies and just introduce you um, to their world and to what they're doing, and hopefully, you know, inspire you or pique your interest. Um, so we hope you enjoy uh, this new content from us. Please feel free to offer us your feedback, and if you maybe have any questions that we can offer in the future, hit us up with that. So... With that, welcome to Whisper in the Wings, and here's our first interview. So listeners, we've got a new uh, feature here with Stage Whisper. This is going to be called our new Whisper in the Wings, and we are very excited to have our first guest, uh, Benjamin Kintish. Am I saying that right? You are. Well done. Awesome. <laughs> uh, Benjamin uh, met, well, we met through our social media account, our Instagram, and he has a fantastic musical and one we'd love to share with you. So we're really excited to be talking with him today um, and getting the word out about our show and, and, and finding some stuff out. So um, with that, Benjamin, welcome. Welcome to Stage Whisper, to Whisper in the Wings. So happy that you're our inaugural guest on this. Thank you. Yes, and why don't, uh, let's have you tell, tell us all about Life Review, the hospice musical. You got it. It's Andrew and... Hope. 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 <laughs> all right, pro tip. For all you kids listening at home, remember the names of your hosts. <laughs> right. um, thanks. Uh, Andrew and Hope, it's written down. It's, it's an audio medium, but these guys can see on camera. <laughs> thanks, guys. Um, yeah, Life Review the Hospice Musical is a musical comedy set in a residential hospice. It's Fiddler on the Roof meets Chorus Line in a hospice. Uh, the musical itself was uh, inspired by real life events, which I lived through as a beginner chaplain working in a residential hospice, actually in real life central New Jersey um, at, the, at the Real Life Center for Hope Hospice. Uh, and I was, uh, I was training there as a chaplain. I was going through chaplaincy training with a program called Clinical Pastoral Education or CPE. And part of CPE is you do literally hundreds of hours of visitation uh, with uh, clinical supervision, which is not 
dissimilar from psychologists and other helping professionals, but chaplains do this as well. So I was, I was doing these visits and one of the main things that you do when you're a, a chaplain is you go into the room, you sit down bedside and you say hello. And if they're up for a visit, you start having a conversation. Um, some people want to go straight to the theological because they see you're a chaplain, or, you know, pray for me or pray for my, my children, whatever. But many people just kind of want to talk about real life. So that brings us to life review. Um, it's a phrase that I did not invent. It's actually a clinical term. Life review is uh, a technique of interviewing a person typically near the end of their life, whether they are seriously ill or elderly, and you kind of review over the big important moments of their life. So you learn this technique when you're a chaplain early on because it's so helpful um, because you, you go into people's rooms, you don't know them, and you don't wanna be surface level. Uh, as we learn in hospice care, we don't know if we're gonna get a second or third visit because people are seriously ill. Mm -hmm. So you wanna, attempt to break the ice quickly and then go as deep and as emotional as you can, if possible. Mm -hmm. So a good life review conversation starts with the hello and it goes right into the big important questions. Uh, when it's done skillfully, if the person is cognitively with it and able to uh, speak clearly, you can have a really deep and profound conversation. And I've experienced this in real life with older people as well as younger people dealing with, say, a terminal diagnosis. Um, and, and the experience of this life review process of, of thinking about the important things in your life, it's very dramatic. Um, you hit the highs and the lows and it's... I, I like to describe it almost like a highlight reel of a person's life if it's done right. Okay. So I was doing these life review conversations and they were so evocative. And, and a lot of times I would hear the stories and I could kind of see it, see like the Hollywood film or maybe imagine the song and dance number if, if, if I was already starting to imagine something theatrical. One night I called my wife and I said, honey, these stories I'm hearing bedside, I, I think they want to be songs. Mm-hmm. And without missing a beat, she said, honey, get writing. So that <laughs> night, yeah, it's a good spouse, right? Yeah, so that right. night, um, I opened up one of those black and white composition books and I started scribbling some notes for the, the first ballad uh, that would come to be known as Will It Still Snow When I'm Gone. Um, so that, that song was inspired by a, a poem written by my mother-in-law of the same title, Will It Still Snow When I'm Gone. The original poem was imagined by a woman living in New Hampshire facing her aging and saying, you know, is, is all of life going to continue on after I die? You know, will these beautiful New England winters keep coming back year after year, even after I'm not coming back? So I read that poem and I thought, now that's a really interesting thing to think about when facing the end of one's life, right? I, I was thinking about all of these end of life experiences and all the conversations leading up to the end of life, the conversations of the plus ones, you know, the husbands, the sisters, mm -hmm. the, ch the adult children, um, big questions come up in hospice, right? Um, not just about living and dying, but what are you proud of? Are you carrying shame as I'm quoting my lyric there? 
Um, these big questions come up and for those who are brave enough to think about their own lives with candor and honesty and an open heart, the life review process can be incredibly therapeutic and also life affirming because whether you're a, a quote celebrity and I've met a few dying celebrities, I won't drop the name, but I assure you they were well known um, and now they're dead. But, um, and no, I won't tell you after we're done recording. Uh, but those people, whether they were famous or not, face the same insecurities you and I will feel when we are on our deathbed, right? Is my, was my life well lived? Do my loved ones care about me? Are they forgiving me for the, the sins or wrongs I, I committed for them? Um, th these are like universal themes, but the, the details, the particularities of each person's biography were what fascinated me from the get-go. I met someone who was former Mossad and CIA, you know, like a spy, so he claimed. Wow. I met someone who was a former band leader's wife. Okay. And so for two, three, two or three decades, she traveled with the band and kept an eye on her husband, you know, <laughs> the road. You know how musicians um, are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know about musicians. Um, say no more, Kentish. Um, and, and, and I also remember meeting a guy who in very kind of poignant terms told me about how proud he was to have paid off his mortgage and made sure that his girls graduated high school. And one of them made it to college, right? It, it was like a very simple attainment. So, um, you know, not to, not to judge or anything, um, that particular story wasn't likely to become the one that I would dramatize on stage. Mm -hmm. You know, I had to pick my spots if I was gonna only have a few fictionalized versions of these real life people. But I guess what I'm bringing up is that in every story of every person you meet, there are, um, there are gems to be mined. Um, mm -hmm. Some of it is really profound and some of it is rather mundane, I think. Um, but that's the, that's the real life stuff that you encounter in hospice specifically, and I, I would say even more broadly in healthcare and elder care, right? It's a lot of these beautiful interpersonal moments between the caregiver and the person, or the caregiver and the plus one, or the person and their plus one. Um, the workers interacting with each other in ways that are positive and not. Like, th there's a whole ecosystem, a whole life to hospice. Um, some people are surprised about it because they, they mostly know about hospice as, say, a nurse who comes in to take care of grandpa while he dies at home. That's that's home hospice care, but there are also residential hospices, which is the site of our musical. All right, I've gone on for a bit. Let me catch my breath so you can ask me a question. Yes. Um, so, I mean, one of the things you, you just kind of mentioned, and I remember looking at the clip that you shared with me, uh, you know, a lot of people think about hospice as elderly care and whatnot. I do remember seeing in the clip, you know, there were young people. In fact, it was, wasn't there a boy? In, in the clip you shared with me. And I thought that was really, that kind of caught me off guard because I was like, oh, wait a minute. You know, this isn't just about the, the elderly reaching the end of life. You're, you're covering the full 
the full gamut, the full spectrum of age here about what their different points of view about end of life is. We're getting, you know, everyone. And, and so I assume that that's, that's something that you had to deal with um, in your training is, is meet people of different ages. Yep. Did you, and, and those stories you brought in, obviously, how did you deal sure. with bringing in younger people's stories? Did that have any effect on you or... Sure. So you've asked a lot of good questions all at once. And Here's I'm 10 questions them. and go. <laughs> Please answer seven questions in a row. Coherently. Um, let's see. I'll start with the question behind your question, which I think you implied very elegantly, um, which is sort of the nature of caring for someone who is uncomfortably young. Yeah. Um, I should mention just coincidentally, today is Monday, right? Yesterday I was at the funeral of a um, friend of my wife whose husband had died. So it was the funeral of the friend's husband. Um, I'm 41, the husband was 44. My wife's a little older than both of us. But um, you know, when, when you attend a funeral of someone in your own age court, cohort, your peer group, it inevitably shakes you a little bit because you can identify like, oh, in fact, my father-in-law who I was chatting with today said he recently saw a New Yorker cartoon of an old man reading the obituary column. And the first section is younger than you. And then the second section is same age. And the other section is older than you. And I thought that was very funny. Um, so I was sitting there in the funeral and saying, he is my age. Now this is a man who died of colon cancer and and that is a terrible killer of a lot of younger men. So everyone who's 40 plus gets your uh, mm -hmm. colonoscopy mm -hmm. and do all of that. And women get your mammography and, and all that stuff. Um, but even with preventative care guys, um, tragedies happen and people get cancer and die at all kinds of ages. Um, this is sad to hear, but it's true. There is hospice care for children as well. Um, it's not well known, but if you think about how there are kids who die of cancer, just like with their adult counterparts, if at a certain point a doctor says, this is not getting better, we want to switch to managing the pain and managing the symptoms, which is the essence of hospice care, mm -hmm. they can do that. And there is hospice care for children. Um, typically, it exists in hospitals, in, you know, in pediatric wards and so forth but you can administer um, pediatric hospice care for a child who's getting hospice services at home. Um, now in my play, I chose, because I couldn't put all of the people on stage, um, a la chorus line that has different characters kind of emblematic of different archetypes, right? Different genders, race, racial backgrounds, um, sexual orientations. Um, that was an inspiration for me. When I wrote this, I was thinking, okay, I don't want it to just be old people because that's not the totality of hospice care. Um, just based on the bell curve of who gets ill and who dies, the majority of hospice, care, hospice people are going to be older, mm -hmm. but um, a lot of people in their 40s, well, let's say a lot of people in their 50s and 60s can find themselves in hospice care if it's at the end of a cancer journey or at the end of Parkinson's. Um, those are the two most common degenerative 
or rather terminal diseases that affect younger people. Um, people can be in hospice for Alzheimer's, which more typically gets older people, but we also have early, early onset Alzheimer's too, right? So one could be in hospice at different ages. And so I wanted to put that on stage. Um, another question that you asked in your delightful cluster, <laughs> rapid fire, Andrew, of, uh, of questions was s sort of the, the, uh, the emotion behind it. And I'll tell you this, I remember I, I did two years of internship and another year as a part-time intern in, in uh, hospice chaplaincy and then, and then another two years as an intern in elder care. So I spent a lot of time around the elderly and the, the seriously ill and dying. Um, there are some people who just make a real impact, who you meet and you're like, this guy is sensational. Um, one real life person ended up inspiring the main beloved ca uh, patient character. The fictionalized version is named Leroy Washington. Um, and if you knew the real guy, you would recognize him, but I won't tell you his real name, HIPAA. But um, he, he's no longer walks the earth. But when I met him, he was 102. Um, and he was one of these guys who kept getting into hospice care, not dying, and then they would recertify him, meaning he got another six months of hospice care. So hospice care was not, hospice care doesn't always kill you. That's a, that's a myth. Um, <laughs> in the same way that sunshine doesn't kill you. Um, but anyway, the, Leroy, um, the character, is joyful and he is wise, as his name, as his as his age rather might imply. Um, his music reflects his musical background. He plays gospel. He, he used to be a an a an organist in a in a black church. Um, a different character uh, who was sort of friendly and just wanted to make friends with people. That was his main ambition before he went. He sings a song that sounds a little bit Frank Sinatra, uh, sort of swinging, and it's like, I'll make a new friend. <laughs> and it's of a time, because a man who's 80 now, when he was a swinging 25-year-old, he would dance to Sinatra when right. he was romancing, right? Um, a 102-year-old who spent his whole life in a black church, I imagine, as the playwright, would sing a gospel song in his deathbed. I mean, this is, of course, the musical theater version of a real-life situation that has far fewer jazz hands um, <laughs> and stirring rock ballads, as my composers like to write for me. But uh, yeah, the, it's, the, the characters inform the music, and, and the music certainly in, informs the characters and, and the emotion that comes with them. Yeah, that's uh, one thing I was talking to Andrew about um, when we first got your message. Um, he was like, yeah, there's this uh, hospice musical idea. And at first says like hospice musical, that seems kind of different. Um, but one thing we talk a lot about on our <laughs> podcast is um, we prefer like of, of musical theater genres and of musicals that exist in the world. We like stories that the music comes because there's no other emotion able to, you know. There's, there's, you've got a thought or you have something to say and there's no other way to say it but through music. Right. There are no words. Like that there's all this um, energy and emotion building and that's why, you know, we you start sing. singing um, to help further the story that way. And um, as soon as I heard you kind of giving us your intro and your background, I was like, oh, that would make 
perfect sense for a show because you have all these people, all these interesting people, because everyone has a story um, to tell. Everyone has had something profound to them happen, whether that be profound to the world, that's, you know, not neither here nor there. So I guess one thing that I would like to know is um, what, what are you hoping the audiences get out of it, out of your show? Um, since, you know, there is such that high emotion that can come with songs, or is it a little bit more of a relief? Like, what kind of tone, I guess, if that makes any sense. So, so yes and, for sure. Um, <laughs> yes, I hope the audience experiences the show with an open heart so that they can open themselves to experience maybe some of the unresolved grief that they're sitting with in the theater. I think for a lot of people, as they watch the show, they might experience some catharsis. We have uh, a climactic, after the climactic death scene, time moves forward a bit and we have a community memorial service, which is actually a real life thing at a lot of hospice places and cancer places. They'll do a, a memorial service once or twice a year. Um, so I have one of those on stage and it's a way to kind of, you know, we invite the plus ones, of course, because they're still with us. The dead people are, are no longer on stage. They'll, they'll come back for curtain call um, or maybe the final number. We'll have to work that out. Um, but they're up there and they're able to express um, their memories. There's actually an ensemble number called the eulogy song where each verse sounds it's it's very carol king sounding because my amazing composer michael miller is a child of the 70s he's a bit older than me and he learned piano trying to be like carol king so all this stuff sounds like her which is amazing um, <laughs> and his uh his eulogy song is just spectacular because i i wrote the lyrics for all the songs i i tried to give each plus one one stanza, four lines that encapsulated the entire life of their loved one. So they would step up to the lectern, if you can picture it, sing a verse, and then as they sit back down, the whole ensemble joins in this sort of collective, I guess you could say outpouring of grief, but it's also a, um, I'll quote it, we celebrate the life we lived as we mourn the lives we lost. Something like that. Um, I did not sing that nicely in tune. Sorry, <laughs> listeners. Um, I, I assure you the, the Broadway album sounds much better. Um, this is a judgment-free zone. <laughs> thanks. Thanks, man. No, but it's, it's an, important, an important lyric there because when you honor the memory of someone, ideally, this is me speaking here. There is no right way to grieve, but I think ideally one can celebrate a life well lived even as you mourn the loss. That's, that, that might be one of the messages of the show that even though we lose people, even though we say goodbye to people when they die, we can celebrate with joy um, the life that they lived and the, the love that they brought to our lives. Uh, we can celebrate their triumphs, whether they are well-known and visible or whether they are hidden. And, and I think you understood that right away, Hope, um, based on some of your questions before. Like, dude who paid off his mortgage and got the girls through high school, he does not have a dramatic song in my show. He's not in my show. But he is most 
men and women who face their their mortality, right? To say, did I do well by my spouse? Did I do well by my kids? If I've been blessed with grandkids, how are they doing? You know, yeah. I think I think there's a Hollywood fantasy that we all make. Um, I don't know a Hollywood impact. So as befitting a Hollywood story, which is some sort of like weird self-perpetuating notion. If, 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 if our notion of like a life well-lived is one worthy of a Hollywood treatment, and that notion is defined by Hollywood treatments of life well-lived, well then most of our lives are gonna seem really paltry, right? Because most of us don't have lives that are going to be depicted in a Hollywood um, drama or movie musical for that matter. Mm-hmm. Most of us simply do the best we can by our loved ones. Um, hopefully do a medium good job at our job or maybe just show up depending how we feel at our job or stay home if we're not working. Shout out to my unemployed people. Thanks for listening. Um, <laughs> you got a lot of actors on here, right? Too soon. Sorry. COVID's a dick. Um, things are back to normal. I don't know. I don't know right. how to feel I about mean, that. I feel I don't know. Like going into everything's the- normal in Texas and Florida, Andrew. That's what I heard. Yeah. Um, Do you know? Fair. It has fair. been for two years. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, to be in the theater, to have any toe dipped into the theater, is to understand that. It, you're going to have to deal with feast or famine if you want to make money off of it. Oh, I, I love what my, my <laughs> professors in college said. They said, we're so glad you chose a career in unemployment mildly interrupted with jobs. And I was just <laughs> like, wow, how motivational you you are. Like, thank you. <laughs> but it's, it's reality, it's, you know. It's very funny. And since you brought it up, um, I have several day jobs. <laughs> my main day job right now, I'm a a gainfully employed middle school chorus teacher, so God bless me. Yes, Um, here's the teachers. Yes, if you thought being a hospice chaplain was challenging, try teaching middle school chorus. Oh, gosh. (laughs) And I'm like, kids, I think you might be singing. And they're like, (laughs) Please listen carefully. Anyway, working on this project. Oh, approximately eight years. I kid you not. Um, it started 2013, which I think is eight, maybe nine years now. Um, when I was a, a beginner hospice chaplain, that was when the first songs got sketched. The following summer, I shared one song at a Jewish education conference where um, one of my heroes, Sue Horowitz, had a song swap. And I shared a very rough version of that snow song Half the room was in tears when I was done. And she said, Ben, I think you've created something of power. Um, She found me at lunch and said, are there other songs? I said, there are. And she said, you better keep writing. She also gave me some very good advice, even though she's not a theater person. She said, you can't just write sad ballads because they'll leave at intermission and they'll never come back. (laughs) Demoralizing. 
That was good advice, right? Fair, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even Sweeney Todd has a comedy number too. Yep. Um, West Side Story. I mean, all the great tragedies have some good comedy numbers. Uh, so I have several funny numbers, including a very raunchy R&B number where my patients are lusting after the caregivers um, <laughs> based on real life. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. Well, I can tell you as a, as a warm-blooded man of a certain age, I wrecked this elbow in a snowboard crash when I was 30-something. So I was relatively young and enjoyed gazing fondly at the nurses as they went here and there while I was waiting for my surgery. Fast forward to when I worked in elder care and they were all very friendly, you know, that's their job. So you're like, oh, they love me. Ah. No, <laughs> they don't love you. They're just friendly because it's their job, by the way. Um, <laughs> and in elder care and in hospice care, guess what? The same beautiful people who are all incidentally much younger than you at that point, um, they're nice to you and they generally look good because as Leroy quips, if they're less than a hundred and they're a woman, hello. <laughs> um, Love that. So uh, yeah, so that, that's what that song came from. Um, and you know, we, we giggle about it, but let, let's just talk biology for a moment. Um, wh when you think about the most powerful urges that a human has, eating, drinking, and copulating, AKA, you know, wink, wink. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't mean to make this too racy, but people always get embarrassed about how older people have a sex drive or even a sex life. I mean, if you can go for it, have fun. Um, but guess what? Even people in hospice care are going to still have sexual urges because they're still people. Um, so some folks are surprised that I included that song or even that I made it so PG-13, but here's the thing, like there's a reason why people are given such a powerful urge uh, to be sexual with other humans. You know, it keeps our race going. Um, and it does not turn off neatly at the end of your, you know, childbearing years, we all know, right? So it, it can be enjoyed. Um, so we play around with that. Um, there's, uh, we, we joke a lot about the nature of aging and the nature of dying. Um, you know, the play is, is a wash in black humor. Um, I guess hat tip to Sweeney Todd um, as an inspiration there. Um, that play is incredibly dark, almost horribly so if you pay attention to it. And then when you catch your breath, you're like, oh, it's also wickedly funny, especially in a song like Have a Little Priest. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to be dancing through the graveyard, so to speak, throughout the play. Um, my main character who looks just like me um, is a little bit of a Tevya. Um, and he's a, a young man who's very, very smart in terms of his studies. He's not the sharpest tool in the shed in terms of like basic human interactions. So there's a little bit of a buffoonery there. Um, he's also very eager, which is a reflection of yours truly, um, IRL. And what he needs to learn is that it's not up to him to say all the smart things and it's not up to him to fix the people. Um, I don't know if you guys are church or synagogue or Moscow and people, but um, 
you think of the very worst in clergy, it's, it's those who want to pontificate and educate at the moment that you just need a quiet presence. Um, when you study chaplaincy, one of the most important things you learn is how to create a space. Mm. Actors learn how to do that with a <laughs> pause um, <laughs> or a gesture. You couldn't see the gesture at home because it's still just an audio podcast. Yeah. We got the two fingers. Uh, yeah, the two fingers and then a thumbs up. Right. Um, yeah, so we don't we don't necessarily have that instinct. As I'm also trained as a clergy. I went to, to seminary for five years, trained as a cantor, which is like a Jewish music minister. I can tell you, cantors are not by trade, uh, not typically the quiet ones. They're the ones who's like, everyone be quiet while I sing for 30 minutes in an elaborate fashion. Ah. So you can be, I mean, even if you're Catholic, if you've ever heard the cantor, it's the same Latin root, you know, the person who does the fancy solos. But in a, in a synagogue where the cantor does a lot of singing, there's a lot of ta-da vocalizing. So you want everyone to be quiet while you sing the prayers. That's sort of the nature of the cantor. It's a very re Jewish religious prima donna kind of character. So w when I first sat down in chaplaincy training and I heard the lesson, well, you have to learn how to be quiet. I'm like, mm -hmm. <laughs> who me? That's a hard one. Um, I think for anyone listening who's a therapist, um, a mediator, even a teacher, um, the impulse is to educate and say and talk and, but to pause and then give the other a chance, that's where the connection is made. So that's, that's the big lesson that our hero has to make over the course of the play. Um, the other thing that he has to learn is how to basically how to cry how to grieve authentically because he's bottled up his private grief we learn along the way that rabbi david has lost his parents they both died when he was in seminary or shortly thereafter but you know he's 30 something with no parents and um he's trying to like just brush the dirt off his pants like he does at the beginning of the play when he's gardening. Just like brush it off and cheerfully go on to the next patient and cheerfully go on to the next day. Um, what you might call putting on a brave face. Uh, for anyone who's listening, who's been through a real grief struggle um, with a, a, a close family member, like a parent or a spouse or a sibling or a, God forbid a child, um, you know that, that the world might ask you or hope for you to put on a, a, brave, a brave face, um, it is not typically helpful for the person who is grieving to go through that masquerade. Um, oh, I'm using some theater metaphors, not fully intentionally, but when I say <laughs> them, I'm like, oh good, theater podcast. So there's that famous song, Tears of a Clown, I think Smokey Robinson. Yep. And um, when I went through chaplaincy training, we had this interesting exercise where we had to pick among 50 or 60 caregiving archetypes. And mine, the one that I picked was the sad clown. And I think um, the character of Rabbi David is very much a sad clown archetype. Um, he's a little lonely, he's a little nerdy, he's a little awkward. 
Um, and he has his sadness, but he's also happy to be the fool so as to let everyone else have the break to relieve their pain and sadness, which is um, a characteristic that I embody as a chaplain and even as a teacher, like I'm, I'm the embarrassing, you know, goofy middle <laughs> school guy, whatever. So, because I know the, the kids in the room are as embarrassed as, can, as all can be, you know, to be 12. That's hard. That's hard. Um, and, and you know, the, like in real life, separate from the play, in my chaplaincy, I used humor a lot. I had one teacher who didn't really like that, but you know, <laughs> that's okay. Um, not everyone is for everyone and not every style is for every person. Mm -hmm. um, I think humor and laughter can be incredibly helpful um, to deal with that which hurts the most. Um, to me, it's a very Jewish tradition um, you think about the biting humor in Fiddler, which comes directly from the Yiddish writings of Shalom Aleichem. It's classic tragic comedy where he's making, I mean, if I were a rich man, everyone loves that because it's like this joyous chassid dancing and we're all fantasizing about wealth. But if you look a little closer at that song, it's kind of dark. He's fantasizing about obscene wealth at a time of obscene poverty. Mm -hmm. He talks about having a real wooden floor. He's a man with a wife and three grown daughters and he doesn't have a wooden floor. Mm -hmm. that's, that's not working poor, that's like abject poverty. Um, so it's humorous and it's fanciful, but the, the, the pathos to that song is it is, terrible to be as poor as I am, which he says to God right before he starts singing. He says, would it be so hard? Would it be so bad for me to have a little money? Like there's enough righteous poor people. Why not a righteous rich person? Um, so that question of why me, that dialectic with God back and forth is a very real one for the play, both for our hero principally, who is a faithful man wrestling with his own Suris, that's Yiddish for troubles. Um, and then everyone else in the play, because here's the thing. Um, you know, there's, the, there's that old cliche, there are no atheists in a foxhole. <laughs> here's the thing. There are plenty of atheists in a hospice. That surprises people. But everyone wants to be heard, whether they want to be heard by God or the chaplain or the custodian who's hanging around and friendly or the pretty nurse or the handsome nurse, whatever gender you enjoy. Um, everyone wants to be heard. No one wants to be left alone. I think if you ask most people about imagining their end of life, most people say, I would prefer to be at home rather than in a hospital. Mm -hmm. Most people say, I would prefer to be with loved ones rather than alone. Um, Again, the, the details of the story vary, but those themes are, are very similar. Yeah, that's definitely very relatable. Mm -hmm. um, so now, if I understand correctly, this show hasn't been like full, like there hasn't been a production of it performed. We have not yet been fully produced. Okay. Hashtag not yet. <laughs> um, no, so we've had two wonderful live workshops. Two years ago, we were in Portland, Oregon at Reed College at a national Jewish education conference called New Cage, where we presented the concert version. And several of my buddies from the Jewish music world um, 
sang various songs. We presented 10 songs in concert where one of our composers, Andy Basov, excuse me, played live piano. Our second and more fully fleshed out production happened just before COVID. See, we saw COVID coming and we we're like, let's get this in under the wire, which was really, really clever of us. We were there end of January, 2020, and we were proud to have a standing room only audience. We had local community theater talent. Um, we were able to go from the 10 songs previously to a full length 16 song play with an intermission and dialogue. I think we had eight players. There were a few who were like double cast, you know, kind of like come from away where people switch a hat and they turn, they change ages and stuff. Um, eventually I imagine it would have an ensemble of 10 or 12, but hey, if you've got the budget, I've got the company, right? <laughs> um, but it, does, it doesn't feel like uh, a Lamez style um, mega show with mega sets. It feels smaller a la Fun Home, um, or even Come From Away, which tackles big stuff using a tiny set. Um, the, the, the moments that happen are, are a big deal, but they happen in close proximity. So even when we did that, that workshop production, it was on a stage that was like a 12 inch riser in a room that wasn't a proscenium stage by any stretch. Um, but you know, for those moments when we're singing the chaplain to the person in bed or the person getting out of the bed through the magic of theater and singing the story of their life, um, like, like we used to, like we saw in Hair, like we saw in um, uh, the, the Green Day musical. American um, Idiot. Thank you, American Idiot, yes, <laughs> same thing. The, the people get out of bed, it's the magic of theater. Um, <laughs> Yeah, all that magic happens and all of us can kind of lean into it and get closer to a moment that, that otherwise would be very much hidden. And this is the one that, that they filmed and it's on your website, right? That's right, so, so that trailer that anyone listening to can, can take a look at, lifereviewmusical.com. And right when you land there, you see this nice trailer we made. It's about five minutes long. And you see some clips from the live workshop performance that happened before COVID. You'll see me talking on screen as well as some members of the audience. Um, it's, you know, this, this might be where, <laughs> where I make a face and say, what an interesting ride it's been since that workshop, Andrew and Hope. <laughs> um, I don't know. Have you guys talked on your podcast at all about um, COVID and theater and... Yeah, so, I think you have a little bit. Yeah, just a time. I mean, we started, the, well, both well, the, of us work in the theater, and this started out of us kind of having no theater work and people yeah, being we, like, you have a ton of stories about the theater. Why don't you just start a podcast and talk about that? Right, because oh, like, done. COVID started. Non-sarcastic applause. Non-sarcastic <laughs> applause. When we, when we, you know, when COVID hit, like that was the hardest thing is I had just hit the point in my career where theater was our main source of income for me. Um, and it was really exciting. It took like 10 years to get there. Thank you. Thank but it was, you. it was the first, one of the first industries to close and one of the last industries to come back. So of course, as everything was reopening, mm -hmm. we were definitely one of the people that were like, you know, when people were like, everything's back to normal. It's like, I still don't have my job. It's not back to normal. Well, and one thing that was really important for us and a lot of the reason why we started this musical, uh, musical, wow. Podcast. Uh, this podcast <laughs> is because um, we are from Salt Lake City, Utah. 
and a lot of people out there tend to do the same five or six shows over and over again because they're the ones that they know align with their beliefs. And mm -hmm. we thought this would be a great opportunity to start having a more in-depth conversation as to why we like those shows and how to broaden our horizons so that we can give new works like yours um, an opportunity because, you know, you never know. I'm of the school of thought. You never know if you like something until you try it. But I realized that not everyone is from that. So how do we make kind of a, a safe space for you to learn about new things without, without the, I guess, the, um, the risk of buying a $200 ticket to go see a new show on Broadway? You know what oh. I mean? And I do appreciate that opportunity, Hope. I wish there were more. I mean, I think like a lot of young playwrights, I'm kind of looking here and there for opportunities and grabbing whichever I can. So, so I, I do appreciate the chance to, to share with your listeners, especially knowing that they are all theater fans. I listened to a couple of your episodes. I was listening to Hair earlier today and I loved it. That, that was actually the musical I used to blast from my shelf stereo. Uh, do any of you remember what a shelf stereo is? Yeah. Um, now, was it five CD oh, changer? Two speakers or was it like a boom? Okay, yeah. No, definitely two speakers. Yeah. So you could like spread it out with six yes. inches of wire for better sound. Yes. Yeah. So I was Surround rocking out my sound. first year. Yeah, surround <laughs> sound. And hair was the one that I would blast, um, which is funny because without oversharing to your 1.2 billion listeners um, let's just say that some of the scandalous behavior heard on the hair soundtrack i had not yet experienced at the time i was blasting it in my room like i think a lot of people do with scandalous material mm -hmm. um like all the 12 year olds who are like eminem <laughs> um but i remember i was like yeah this is awesome. Exactly. I'm a little bit naughty. I'm playing a musical, but it's R-rated. Yeah. <laughs> that second song in the show is so dirty. I know. It has all these words I had to look up. <laughs> <laughs> so so that's that was my connection with hair. So when I was listening to that today, guys, I was grinning throughout. So thank you for that. Um, you know, like, there's a, a very different... Um, there's another pod that I, I've enjoyed a lot called Broadway Backstory that I guess is no longer making new episodes, but they talk about the genesis of plays that made it to Broadway mm -hmm. um, from idea to, you know, opening night. And the host likes to point out that a lot of crazy ideas only make sense after you see them on Broadway. Mm -hmm. And on the way to Broadway, it's just many, many people who, despite good sense, said yes to a crazy idea. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm saying it in a, in a clumsy way, but he, he likes to say this play could have not been made at like different stops along the way. Um, but somehow they kept pushing so it. I, and I say that too. Sorry. Oh. I was going to say, it's one of those crazy ideas that for some reason someone just kept pushing and pushing. Now it's this great work that we all know. Yes, the one over your right shoulder is a good example of that. Yes. The first time uh, Lynn mentioned to the White House crowd that it was a hip-hop musical about the Founding Fathers, they all snickered. 
And so I get a lot of snickers about a hospice musical and people say, is that a joke? And I say, no, but it's surprisingly funny. <laughs> and, um, you know, like, I appreciate that, that, that the material is not going to be for everyone, but I do think it is very relevant and it's actually super timely. Um, as much as what you said a couple minutes ago, Andrew, about COVID wrecking the theater industry and putting so many of our friends and colleagues out of work, um, I think there's also been an exciting explosion of stuff like this where people are um, finding new ways to share creative things. Um, fun fact, I played London two or three months ago, virtually. <laughs> I was the final entertainment at the end of a brand new death festival. The death festival was conceived during COVID. There have been death festivals for years, but this was a new one. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it kind of like blows the mind that someone is like, huh, what should I do during COVID? What London needs is a new death festival. I mean, I don't know if there were a shortage of death festivals in London, or maybe London's a city known for its death festivals. I would have to look that up. But either way, the two wonderful organizers decided in the middle of COVID, that's what they wanted to do. And they created this amazing festival. And they actually had participants from all over the world presenting. And because of the virtual format, um, you had a much bigger reach geographically than you would for a typical conference. Mm -hmm. You know, if you do a conference that no one's ever heard of, you're only gonna get people within driving distance mm -hmm. or like friends of the organizer. Right. So to me, um, this crazy horrible moment that was a shutdown of live theater has also resulted in a blossoming of all sorts of creative outlets. So podcasts like yours and others that I've been on that were started in the last two years, um, new death festivals and et cetera <laughs> that are out there. Um, the other thing that's really exciting that I wanna mention is as a new playwright, um, I know you've, you've talked about all of these established plays. Um, there is a certain kind of a zigzag road here, the gesture is my hand is doing like a, a snake <laughs> zigzag that I think a lot of playwrights hope for that maybe zigzags in an up direction with up meaning more people and more money and larger houses that, that, that gets you to somewhere who knows. I mean, you know, if the Golden Goose is Broadway or off Broadway, we know that statistically most of us never get anywhere close, but if we can put it on a stage if people can breathe life into our words that's pretty exciting um even more so if that happens more than once mm -hmm. right before covid there were maybe a, a handful of playwright festivals here and there there were i'm guessing a few dozen houses around the country that choose to put on new works but not a not a gazillion it's not like there are thousands of theaters in the United States doing new works. I'm guessing dozens, not hundreds. Yeah. I mean, if, if I'm wrong, you can correct me. But based on my research, I don't think there are over 100 theaters in the United States that are actively looking for works no one's heard of. Yeah. Um, and with that being said, all of us little playwrights, and same could be said for composers and 
painters. You know, we're all looking for someone to give us a chance to hear our thing, to see our thing, to stage it, to listen to it. So I, I do appreciate you offering your pod as a venue. And I, I would encourage for those of you listeners who are involved with, um, with community and regional theaters, if your organization does 90 to 100% fabulous shows like West Side Story and My Fair Lady and et cetera, et cetera. I love both of those, by the way. So I choose those with love and honor. Um, let me lovingly suggest that you consider as an investment in the future of American playwriting and a, as an investment in the future of the American musical theater, including one new work every other year. Yes. Or one, I mean, if you do four musicals a year, could you do one out of eight a new musical? Or a musical that's not even new, but no one's heard of. I'm yeah. sure there are hundreds that are obscure. Um, even there, there's some that are like, if you're not even bold enough to, to put on one that, that no one's ever heard of, how about a play that is the less well-known? I mean, I think people are doing that a lot now with Sondheim, where they're mm -hmm. like, ooh, which are his most obscure ones? Let's do that. Okay, that's cool, but there are other playwrights, some who are very famous and some who are less famous. Yeah. Um, so, and, and I would say that community and regional theaters may be in a better position to try some of that stuff. I mean, I know you, there's always a question of finances, like if you can't sell any tickets, how do you keep the lights on? That's complicated. So I don't have a magic wand to solve your budget problems. Um, if I did, um, I wouldn't have my day job, right? Um, but that said, I, I do think that for us to continue to have a growing and vibrant musical theater scene in this country and around the world, we should all do what we can to keep making spaces for, for new plays. So yes. we can all do that. Um, and, and for that matter, um, while I'm on my soapbox, when you see weird new plays coming out, go to them. Yes. Um, especially if there's a touring Broadway house in town, yes, see the touring Broadway, but if there's that funky theater, go to that too. <laughs> like yes. maybe even get season tickets. Um, I was gonna say that that's, that's been the big push with us lately. When we started our other mini set, the Broadway Bulletin, it was to inform people about really, as theaters were reopening primarily on Broadway, like what was opening or reopening, what were the shows like? How are they doing? Blah, blah, blah. Well, it's continued with like, what are we seeing? And, you know, we've seen everything on Broadway now and we've extended it to well, what's playing off Broadway and what's off off Broadway. And what a lot of people don't realize is when they come to New York, they immediately are like, okay, theater, got to go to Broadway. And it's like, well, there's a lot of incredible work, half mm. the price, one street over. And typically a lot of shows that play in the big houses on Broadway, they start somewhere else. Well, Catch it before it gets big. Yeah. It'll change your yeah. life. And, and, and kind of building on what you said about community theaters and that take a risk. I think theaters have been afraid because the materials is like, ooh, will an audience like it? I think I've been to two shows this year in the winter here in New York that weren't packed. And that thing, I think that says a lot about the material that's being developed now. Like audiences are loving everything and the performers are putting on just as good stuff they're taking those risks it is an audience's 
like they're the winners in all of this. Well, and uh, one thing that we have talked about on our podcast is, you know, uh, people have asked, well, is theater dying? You know, is no. theater going to go away? And that is one thing. It's never going to go away because mm. at its very basic, it's storytelling. And we all want to share our stories um, and have our stories be heard. Yeah. So... Speaking of stories, you've mentioned a couple, but are there any particular shows that have inspired you or like, you know, writers or composers? Great question. So for the last round of development, we had an almost third production. The, tr the wheels kind of ran off that one. But for that almost production, I created a Spotify playlist of five albums to inspire the team. And they were as follows. Um, Fiddler on the Roof. Chorus Line, Fun Home, Falsettos, and Come From Away. Good ones. I love it. <laughs> I love all of those. Oh, Win. great. Come great. From I'll stay on this interview. Favorite one. Um, which one is a favorite? Come From Away. Yeah. That, oh, mm. In incredible show. And um, what I loved about Come From Away was a, a variety of musical styles that reflected the characters singing them. I loved songs that brought you deep into a person and, and where they were without a whole mess of dialogue. My, my show is rather talky, but hopefully I still do well with the songs I wrote. Um, Fiddler on the Roof, I mentioned earlier, the Tevia thing, Wrestling with God, um, and, and also a lot of tension about what, what's, what's the most important thing, right? What do, what do we go to the mat for? What do we fight for? Um, because those kinds of questions about priorities um, come into sharp contrast when people are dealing with the end of their life. Um, chorus line, mostly for the structure um, the idea of people stepping up to deliver their musical monologue, so to speak. That was a model that I used as I was writing these songs. When it first began, um, it was pointed out to me, I didn't have much of a plot. And then I was, I just kept saying, but chorus line. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and the truth is, um, with, with all respect and love to that masterwork, that play has a story and it doesn't at the same time. And I like to maintain that my, my play has a story and it doesn't at the same time. And depending if you want a plot or not, you can decide whether it does or doesn't. <laughs> so if you want a plot, the rabbi grows and learns from beginning to end. And if you don't want it to have a plot, you just keep meeting the people and they keep coming and going, which is part of the nature of real life. It's part of the nature of, of being a caregiver. Anyway, I got Fiddler, I got uh, Falsettos, was the first musical that changed my life when I was, I want to say 12 or 13, where I was like, wow, this, um, I think one of you said hair was that for you, right? I think that was for you, Hope. 
Yep. <laughs> right. So for me as a 13 year old kid, um, not yet bar mitzvahed. And then to hear a song like, I don't want a bar mitzvah. I was like, oh my God, someone <laughs> understands me. I'm not just being like a nerdy neurotic Jew, but like just the whole, the whole thing of it was amazing. Um, as a grown up aspiring playwright, actually I'm not aspiring, I wrote a play. As a playwright, <laughs> um, hashtag fraud complex. Um, no, I, I look at falsettos and I think it is a masterwork in tragic comedy. I mean, that's a heavy play, mm -hmm. especially the second act where the, the love of Marvin's life is dying of AIDS and then dies of AIDS. Mm -hmm. It's dark and there's no happy ending there. Nope. They have a bar mitzvah celebration in the, in the hospital room and then he dies and then it's over. I mean, but when you think for those of you who know the play and have seen it, it's not, I mean, it's devastating in the way it should be when you love the character who dies on stage, but it's also not demoralizing, right? Because throughout there's so much good comedy, there's so much celebration. And I wanted to emulate that balance of the heavy, um, the heavy drama with the quirky humor. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm a, a neurotic Jew and, and falsettos is populated by those. Um, not all my characters in my play are Jewish. Some of them are, um, but we're very much United Colors of Benetton, um, the nurse who's sort of the, the wise figure and friend to the lonely rabbi. She's West Indian, like the majority of the nurses I met working in the East Coast. Um, which is a very tricky accent I learned from my actresses. Using a Haitian accent um, is very tricky. Um, we have an old Jewish couple. Um, we have the elderly African-American Leroy and his baby sister who's only 92 and he teases her for being so young. <laughs> <laughs> old people, haha. -ha. Um, and uh, I think those are all of my dads. Oh, and, and we have, um, uh, a middle-aged mother who's dying and has, or a 50-something mother who's dying and her adult son is her plus one. So there are all these different relationships, different configurations. Um, that to me looks like come from away, that looks like falsettos, that looks like spelling bee. Um, that's another William Finn masterpiece. Um, I was listening to that the other day. If I had picked six musicals, that would have been my number six. Um, that musical has become much more profound to me since becoming a middle school chorus teacher because I'm spending <laughs> all my time with these angsty 11, 12, 13 year olds. Um, they don't ever sing those songs from the play, right? Those <laughs> songs are all... Just in your I believe, head. I believe they're inside their head, amplified. Um, <laughs> like most of the songs in my play, you know, the dying patients aren't actually getting up and singing with or without jazz hands. Some of them might be, that's up to you to decide, dear audience. But, you know, it's, it's mostly look, looking into the, to those heads and imagining what they are thinking and dreaming that I love to do. Um, and I tried to do with the different perspectives. Um, and I think that was all five, course on, yeah, I think that was all five. Cool. Yeah, lots of inspirations.
Well, as we wrap things up, we just have a couple more questions. Um, of course, in our podcast, we love to share, you know, stories about our experience in the theater. So we would be remiss if we didn't ask, what is your favorite theater memory? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have, I have one that's rather poignant and one that's inspirational, and I'll tell them both. Great. So the poignant one is actually my first death memory, which is appropriate for the dude who wrote a hospice musical. <laughs> I was eagerly awaiting um, our class trip to see the high school. They used to do uh, like their dress or tech rehearsal and invite all the elementary kids. So that was a big deal in my school district. I was third grade. I was like, yeah, we're going to go see. It might have even been Fiddler, if I'm not mistaken. So full circle times three here. Um, <laughs> And we were getting ready to go and I got paged to the office and it turned out that my grandma had dropped dead. Oh. So um, yeah, it happens when you're elementary school. And I mean, sad story, she had a heart attack and died and that was that. And at first I wanted to go to the play really bad. And then, you know, they send you to the bathroom to, to pee before you go to the bus. And a friend of mine found me crying and he was like, what happened? I was like, my grandma died. And I couldn't stop crying. And he was like, are you going to the play? And I was like, I want to, but I'm sad. And the teacher said, maybe you should just go home, Benjamin. So I did. Um, I think I was crying so much because I love the theater and I loved Grandma Charlotte. Um, so I was excited about the play and disappointed to miss it. Um, and it was also the first time I'd been knocked on my ass um, about you know, with the shock of the, the death of a loved one. That was my first big death in my life was my grandma, Charlotte. Um, a happier memory <laughs> was a play I did actually go to. I believe it was in middle school um, with the youth group. It was the first time I saw a Broadway show. It was Les Mis, which is often the first one that kids get dragged to when it's on Broadway or taken <laughs> to rather. Sorry, I didn't mean to be derisive. <laughs> <laughs> or disdainful. It's a wonderful play with many powerful themes. Um, <laughs> that said, though, it is a play that a lot of young people are brought to as their first one. So I remember watching it and seeing, I want to say that probably the comedy number was a Master of the House and thinking mm -hmm. like, I want that. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't, I couldn't, like, because I had never been in that room before, I didn't know that I wanted it, which I guess is different than a kid who could see like a ball player on TV when he's five. Mm -hmm. um, for all of us like theater kids, I think for a lot of us, it's that first Broadway show or touring show where it's like, it's an extra bright light that shines and you're like, what is that? Mm -hmm. So, that that to me was the aha moment and then it was chorus and musicals for many years thereafter i ended up becoming a music a conservatory singer then a music school dropout and then became a cantor and actually just the other day your listeners will be very proud of me i got into the ensemble for cinderella at the local community theater oh um, and it was so funny <laughs> thank you thank you i told all my chorus chorus students that even though Mr. Kintish is a professional singer, he still got nervous. I think that's an important lesson. Um, I'm guessing if the two of you are professional theater people, if you're on stage people, you probably still get nervous. 
You might even get nervous if you're backstage people too. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I sweat right through my shirt and, and I was better than most people because I'm, you know, I'm a professional singer and it's community theater. I didn't get a principal, but I got a call back. So I was, you know, it was pretty exciting. Um, but yeah, that, it, it was so funny when, when I was talking to them, I was like, I think this is my first audition since I was 17. <laughs> it was a long, it was a long dry spell of, of doing the Jewish stuff and just not being on stage, but it was actually writing the play that brought me back to theater. I'd always been a fan. My wife and I go to the theater all the time, Broadway, touring, regional, community, college, high school, middle school, all of it. And uh, we love it. Um, but yeah, it was writing this play that brought me back because uh, I cast myself in the starring role, which is a good trick um, to get a big role because you write it yourself. And then um, now I just want to be on stage however I can, um, sharing this role and playing, playing in that fun sandbox with other performers when I, when I can. Yeah. It's really exciting for me. So are there any uh, plans to produce your show anytime soon? I'm glad you asked, Andrew. Um, <laughs> so yes, we are in year two of the virtual tour. The year one was virtual tour 2021, and we had eight live appearances around the United States and London. <laughs> I assure you I did not use that terrible accent too much during my show. Um, <laughs> God forbid. So that was kind of cool, like random venues, synagogues, conferences, um, professional trainings. Um, I did a benefit last year and I'm doing more of that this, this year. Um, just recently was talking with a, a place, Denver Hospice out in Colorado that uh, I did a benefit for last year and they're talking about bringing me out in person to present my one man cabaret show. Um, over the summer. So I'm hoping to fly out there and present it as a big fundraiser for their people and their organization. Um, look, the reality is in the age of COVID, um, a one man cabaret version of a musical is a lot easier to share with the world than the uh, 16 song ensemble version with an intermission, right? So uh, with this large fancy microphone and a, I've got I found a way to rig some black curtains on the back wall. I can make this look decent. It sounds very good. And I'm able to, to share eight live songs with digital piano accompaniment. So if you're part of a theater group or cultural group that's interested in hearing about new works, I would love for you to be in touch, lifereviewmusical.com. We have a contact form. And maybe when you guys put out the pod, you can have a link for the, for the website. Um, and also, even if you're not interested in, quote, booking me, um, I would love to connect with more fellow theater makers. Um, I've been amazed at the community on Instagram with podcasters, with theater makers, actors, and playwrights. Like, people are so excited. Like, I'm, I'm doing a workshop with my friends. And then other people are like, yay for you. Um, that's nice. It's, it's very encouraging and uh, it can be lonely to be a creative person, especially when you have not yet won your EGOT, you know, you, you still got some work to do. Um, so yeah, I, 
I mean, this is awkward. I, I still haven't gotten my EGOT. Have you, you guys need nah. to <laughs> We're so no. wait, I think we're, our nomination hangs getting lost in the mail, you know? <laughs> Post no, and, and, no, I hear you. I hear you. And, and that's real. And listen, as a chaplain, I can go deep into your pain and pray with you if you like. <laughs> You um, might have to do that after this interview. I got a lot. God, <laughs> God, I'm, I'm sitting with my friend Andrew and Hope, and they have not yet gotten their EGOT. <sighs> and neither have I. And let us say, amen. There we, amen. See? Uh-huh. That's four years of training, baby. <laughs> Impressive. Um, if, you don't, if you don't feel elevated from that, man, get a, get a new cantor or rabbi, whichever one I'm playing. Um, no, but seriously, folks, I would love to be connected with you if you are a fellow theater maker just to hear like what you're doing um are you finding venues irl or online um what's it been like to try to share your stuff um and if anyone wants to if anyone out there is an aspiring musical theater writer um i am a teacher by trade but i i love teaching informally too so if you are on your own journey of writing a musical. Um, I've been at this for only eight years, so I might have a little bit of um, encouragement to offer, if nothing else. Um, if you've been at it more than eight years, I might lean on you for encouragement, but we could, we could laugh about that together. Um, yeah, but I'd love, I'd love to hear from folks. I'm on Instagram at Life Review Musical. And that includes artwork and music and random musings and photos and stuff. Uh, and the website is all about the play with clips and a contact form. If you're fascinated about how have I possibly taken eight years to still not be on Broadway, um, I mean, still growing, still growing. <laughs> Growth mindset, baby. Um, you can read about it on the website, lifereviewmusical.com. Wonderful. I mean, that, that even took care of my last question, which was how to get a hold of you. And I mean, you, he, you are friends with us, obviously, on Instagram, and we'll be f- for sure sharing all the information when we post this, um, all the information about this episode of the podcast on all of our social media. Uh, guys, seriously, check out the, the video clip on, on his website. It's really, really great. It's really cool. Um, it's been a lot of fun talking with you, Benjamin. Hopefully, we can speak with you again. Thanks so much. Um, Thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much. Our first guest. Uh, Again, we've had Benjamin Kintishan. He wrote the show Life Review, the Hospice Musical. Um, So until next time, this has been a special edition of Sage Whisper, our new edition, Whisper in the Wings. I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Holford. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. (laughs) Unwrap your candies and leave your masks on. And keep talking about the theater. Benjamin, do you want to take the, the answer? In a stage whisper. <laughs> Thank you.
If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at StageWhisperPod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Maniac by Jazzar. Other music on this episode provided by Jazzar, Loyalty Freak Music, and Billy Murray. Ah!